You're listening to the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, sharing our passion for the wonders of the ocean. La mer qu'on voit danser. Welcome to the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, produced in association with Planet Pod. My name is Amanda Carpenter, and it's a great pleasure to be hosting this series of podcasts for Blue Marine, a not-for-profit charity whose vision is a healthy ocean forever for everyone. They're dedicated to creating marine reserves, restoring vital habitats, and establishing models of sustainable fishing. We hope these podcasts will give you a glimpse of Blue's work above and below the waves, in the waters around the UK and in the oceans far away. By sharing Blue's stories and insights from the team, we hope you will come to love and treasure the ocean and its wildlife as much as they do. He was a bold man that first ate an oyster, so said author and satirist Jonathan Swift in the early 18th century. However, Swift was late to the game when it came to eating oysters, as they were widely eaten over 2,000 years ago by the Romans and have been fished in the UK waters ever since. To discuss all things oyster, I'm joined by two of the Solent Oyster Project team, Dr. Luke Helmer and Jacob Keane Hammerson, who are both currently stuck indoors and are dying to get back to their oyster beds in the Solent. Luke studied marine biology at the University of Portsmouth for seven years, specialising in marine habitat restoration. With a passion for oyster reefs, he's been involved with the Solent Project since its inception in 2015, though he also works at UK and European level. Hello, Luke, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Jacob Keane Hammerson is Solent Project Manager. He started at Blue as a volunteer after graduating from the University of Sussex, and he's been working on the project since 2017. During and after university, Jacob worked on projects in Zimbabwe and Ecuador, but he has a strong passion for protecting wildlife in the UK. Jacob, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So to talk about oysters, let's think about them in a UK context. Luke, I mentioned that they've been around historically for a very long time. Why are they so significant and important in our marine history? Yes, I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why they're important, uh, not only for the cultural and historic heritage of, of so many areas around the UK, but also the ecological uh, impact that they have on the local environment, but also essentially a global climate one they were in populations that were enormous and and those those romans who would have eaten those oysters you know 2000 years ago would they have harvested them would they have sort of you know if you like artificially had had beds of oysters or would they have just picked them up from the sea around the, the islands yeah so the the romans very much essentially cultivated oysters they would have harvested them from the coastlines but they would have also brought populations into ponds on grown them and, and manage them in that way so that they were essentially a, a more sustainable stock that were reproducing. And what kind of oysters are we talking about? I mean, I associate oysters with the sea, so with salt water, but are there freshwater oysters as well? And, and what kinds of oysters would the Romans and others have eaten? So the oyster species that we're focusing on is the European native oyster, Austria edulis is its scientific name. Um, and it's native from areas all the way up in uh, Norway through uh, the North Sea, the British Channel, um, the Mediterranean, Black Seas, all the way down to Morocco. So it's got a, a, a quite a vast range and um, it is our native species. Most 
people will as associate oysters that you kind of eat with champagne as uh, it's actually a different species, one that was introduced and is now found across the globe in 70 different countries. Um, and that's the Pacific oyster. And that's farmed in many areas around the UK and Europe as well. So it's quite important to be distinct when we're talking about which oyster we're trying to restore. I think one of the most remarkable things about the oysters, as you, as you said, is the, that history of humans eating them and using them for food. And that you have ancient oyster middens that date back all the way to prehistory and were an important food source for people up to the Victorian times when they were the food of the poor and they would be chucked to fill out steak and oyster pies and beef and oyster pies. And, and now they're this luxurious food as they've slowly started to disappear from our our seas they've become more and more luxurious and, and less and less part of our consciousness as a people as, as something that is a food source for us but they've still tracked throughout our history as people which is quite an amazing thing for a kind of humble little oyster I think. Yeah and that, that Victorian love of the oyster was extraordinary wasn't it because they consumed vast quantities and, and and I guess those were those the same native sort of European oysters, they weren't the ones you were talking about, they're just the, the regular oysters that would have been there. And did they go into decline because they were just overfished? I mean, is that, the, is that why we lost them? They just were so cheap that people just ate far too many of them and then they ran out? Historically, certainly, yeah, there was huge over-extraction of oysters. In the 1800s, millions and millions and millions of oysters would go into London each year. And the rate at which they were being consumed just didn't keep up with how the populations could reproduce and grow themselves. And that is a classic case for how stocks and populations can crash. More recently, uh, things like pollution and disease outbreaks and invasive species, as the human, human race became more global and developed, these things have also started to cause the declines in populations that we, that we see now where they, they really have disappeared from much of their natural range. You have a very interesting paper at Blue, and I think the statistic is quite frightening. I think you say it's 95% of Europe and 85% of the world's native oyster beds and reefs have been lost as a result of that overfishing and, and pollution. I mean, that is a species at the edge of extinction, I should imagine, is it, Luke? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the world's most imperiled habitats, essentially, because they are a habitat forming species. Just to put it in in context and some of the numbers that we're talking about. So in 1864, 700 million oysters, native oysters were eaten in London alone in that one year. 700 is, million. Yeah, which I can't even imagine. It would probably fill my entire street that I live on. And that's one year's worth of catch. It's, it's incredible. Wow. And that is the story for, for pretty much all edible species across the globe. So were our Victorian um, forebears not looking after the beds? I mean, they, were they not ensuring that a new oyster stock was coming forward? Did they actually do it in a kind of managed way? Or they, were they literally just going out and, and fishing what was there and not taking any, any care of it? In the past, these beds would have been hyperabundant and the kind of bountiful and plenty that was in the oceans would have just seemed endless. But it's really since mechanical and, you know, steam-powered boats and, and mechanical methods of fishing have been developed that we've begun to just ramp up the way we uh, extract things from the ocean and, and lead to massive decline in various different kinds of stocks that, that um, we once relied upon. Yeah, I mean, it isn't just oysters that we overfish, is it? We overfish large parts of, of the marine ecosystem. So, so, so clearly there's a huge problem. Um, and, but tell me a little bit, Luke, about what, what does an oyster 
I mean, what do they look like in their native habitat? Because you've got two aspects to your project, haven't you? Because there's the establishing a new sort of oyster beds, but there's also possibly rebuilding the what would have been there naturally. Is that right? Yeah, if you were to go out and, and look at a historic healthy population of oysters, I would actually imagine it would be very hard to spot an oyster itself because they get covered in so many different species. It's incredible. It, it, they are ecosystem engineers. They'll be covered in tunicates, ascidians, uh, crabs, prawns, all sorts of things crawling around. So to actually spot an individual oyster would have been very difficult. Um, if you go down into the kind of intertidal area now on a, a low spring tide, you can spot them. Uh, they they look again as Jacob said very humble, uh, essentially rock like. They but our species have as a very distinctive flat dorsal, which is the upper shell, uh, which you can easily determine it from other species of oysters. And do they just hang out on rocks? Are they like mussels? Do they cling to rocks? I should know these things, but I don't. I'm afraid. Do they do they do they cling to rocks, or do they are they sort of on the bottom on on reed beds or sand? Yeah, so they would have historically formed dense aggregations and um, there's some debate at the moment as to whether we're calling them beds reef, uh, reefs or banks um, and so they they are highly gregarious which means they like to settle on other oysters specifically their own species so that's how these kind of dense 3d structures would have once formed and now that's one of the issues we're facing is that lack of suitable habitat for them to settle on there's not many oysters out there there's not much suitable rock material for them to settle on. And again, that's predominantly due to fishing methods, pollution, nutrient inputs that have kind of changed the seabed into a silty, unsuitable area for them to settle on. So what are you doing in the in your Solent project to try and restore that habitat? Because that's, I mean... It, Obviously, where the, where the project is would have traditionally been a very rich seam of oyster fishing. So it's obviously essentially in its own right, quite a good habitat for the oysters, were it not for the pollution. So what are you doing to actually recreate the, the, the oyster beds and, and, and re-establish the population? We're focusing our work on where we know there were oysters once, but due to this kind of all these human impacts that we've seen, there has been a great shift away from what would have been a suitable habitat. So we have to what we have to do is we have to shift the seabed back into a state that an oyster would deem as favourable and then be able to grow and develop and develop these reefs or banks that Luke was talking about. So one of the big things is, is taking the habitat back to a, a hard uh, mixed substrate that promotes settlement. One of the things of doing that is laying large amounts of culch. So Sorry, large amounts of culch? Culch, yeah. So culch is essentially recycled oyster sh old oyster shells or gravels, oh and and that would be laid onto the seabed to harden it up and bring it into a what what the oysters would typically be found upon, and then we want to lay millions of juvenile oysters onto that culch, and re kickstart a, a kind of renaissance of those oyster populations almost, and get them back and have those oysters that allows the larvae that's in the system to know that there are other oysters down there and they can settle down there. So when Luke talks about the gregarious settlement, that's something that we're really trying to bring back and, and have those cues within the waters for oysters to, to start repopulating themselves again. Okay, so, so I'm getting the impression that oysters really like to hang out with other oysters and they're only happy Absolutely. breeding in a, in a colony. Can I ask, how does an oyster breed? That's kind of how my PhD came about essentially is uh, actually the 
larval population in the Solent at the minute is probably not suitable for reefs to become self-sustaining or form again. So what we did is we actually brought back a load of oysters from the fishery and moved them into our nursery systems, which we hung below pontoons. And the reason we did that is that they were in close proximity. Now, the reason we do that is because the males will release sperm into the water column. The females will then take it inside the oyster into their mantle cavity area. Then they'll release eggs, which are fertilized. And unlike other species that release sperm and eggs into the water column, uh, our native oyster is a bit more caring. They look after their larvae until they're ready to be released. And it's how they get their name of uh, juveniles being called spat, is the, the mother oyster will spit the oysters out when they're essentially the, the shape of a capital letter D. And those guys are almost ready, kind of seven to ten days later, to settle on the seabed. Sounds quite complicated and quite a lot of um, nursery sort of, you know, nurturing going on there. And I, do, do you have to do all of that actually in the, the sea itself or can you do it in, in, in an artificial tank or something in a, in a lab? Luke's cages w- were found to be a really amazing way of doing that naturally in the, in the sea uh, and really getting oysters back breeding again in their natural environment. And it was amazing to be able to work in the Solent. It's such a big area for recreational yachting. We could work with industry and infrastructure that was already there to develop it. But you can get them to breed in, in, in a lab as well. Oyster hatcheries exist. They're a way of breeding large amounts of oysters. And that's something that the, our project is trying to do is develop one of the first restoration hatcheries in the UK to essentially culture oysters for the Solent, in the Solent, to help restore the populations back and this hatchery is dedicated just for restoration not for commercial growing of oysters so we can really target it at uh, the best possible way of bringing back such this incredible species that Luke and I are obviously so crazy about you've probably already heard so far. I'm intrigued as to how you got into oysters in the first place but 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 just tell me just why how many oysters do you want to get back into the Solent and why is it so important because clearly you're not doing this as a food production source so you're not you're not reintroducing oysters to the Solent to create an oyster bed that can then be raided, what is now, we know, luxury food. You're clearly doing it for another reason. Why is it so important that we have oysters back in the Solent in such high numbers? I think that what the incredible thing about oysters, what most people don't know about them, is as filter feeders, a single adult oyster can filter up to 200 litres of water a day. It's an incredibly high number. And that filtration leads to a number of other amazing things. They can help clear the water, removing the sediment, making it clearer and cleaner. And they also play a really important role in nutrient cycling. So it's a bit like the role that beans play in the soil. They can help fix nitrogen and reduce the nitrogen loading, which is caused by the pollution, and prevent toxic algal blooms and eutrophication and help mitigate those impacts. So that role that they play is, is, will be really key for the Solent in the future in addressing the pollution issues that it has. Oyster reefs, as Luke mentioned, also create these vast biodiverse areas and improve season that way. So they kind of have these countless uh, amazing benefits other than just being oysters and being great. They do these really amazing roles that have almost been lost so in the Solent, 15 million oysters were fished out in 1978. Our overall aim is to restore 5 million, and hopefully that will cause the populations to kickstart one another and, and start to reseed themselves. So that's our ultimate aim, and, and that's really why we're doing it.
And that's quite an ambitious task, five million oysters. I mean, Absolutely. I don't ask how many how many oysters we've currently got there. Maybe Luke, would you know off the top of your head? I'm assuming you count them individually. <laughs> Possibly not. You estimate. Yes, I, I mean, yeah, the, the, the local fishery authority um, and conservation authority, they do stock assessments and on an annual basis and, and their landing numbers uh, are, are quite dismal at the moment, uh, kind of less than 0.01 per meter squared. So that's quite depressing and highlights the reason why we're doing what we're doing. And we're very much aware that this is going to be a long term project. It's not going to happen overnight. The biology of the oyster restricts that from happening. There are so many environmental factors that input into it. To date, we've restored 69,000 oysters. And those are as part of small scale trials that we've been looking at the, the efficacy of different techniques. Those are including the cages and actually deploying oysters onto the seabed in carefully selected areas and areas not only that will disperse larvae to the whole solent, but also those that will retain larvae and start building up large populations that can expand and then distribute into other areas as well. One of the things with oysters as well, often the numbers we talk about are often so large. One of the most amazing stats came out of uh, Luke's PhD, which always kind of blows my mind, is that he was able to calculate that out of his cages in a single year, a billion oyster larvae were released into the Solent. So it's that you're to always talking such big numbers. That's part of their biology. So they, they produce a lot of larvae, but obviously not many of those larvae actually go on to create a fully formed oyster. Adult oyster is, is that the problem, is that they have to just have lots and lots and lots of you know, larvae and young in order for them to survive? Yeah, that's, so there's a typical high fecund animal where they produce lots and lots of young, but not all survive. But what we're trying to do is create the best possible conditions for as, as many of those larvae to survive as, as possible. And part of that is restoring the seabed uh, as, we, as we've been doing. And now we're at the stage of we've taken our learnings from these trials and looked at what we know. And we're Right now, we're getting to a stage where we're getting ready to scale up and start doing this on significant levels. Yeah, because volume is important in this. Can I ask you, you talked earlier about it being um, us finding difficulty if we looked at the seabed of actually seeing an oyster. And obviously their role as a, a key species in biodiversity w would indicate that that would be the case. What else is going on in and around an oyster bed that's so important for biodiversity in terms of marine habitats? So, I mean, the, the oysters themselves and their shell structure is very frilly, it's flaky, there's lots of microhabitats within that. Then you get the smaller crustaceans and those kind of species that inhabit that, it protects them, provides a nursery function. You then get juvenile fish moving in, feeding on those crustaceans. And then that, again, provides a nursery function for those fish and encourages larger fish into the area. So it essentially builds an ecosystem from the ground up. Historically, especially in the Solent, there would have been this integrated habitat matrix between oyster reefs, salt marsh and seagrass, all within the harbours and the wider Solent that would have allowed mobile species, so the fish, to, to transfer between those throughout the different states of tide. And the abundance of fish would have been would have been enormous. And I guess that kind of links back to the other, other benefit, not just the ecological benefits, but the socio-economic benefits as well that oysters and oyster habitat can provide. And I mean, if you if you take an example out in Australia that they've calculated that for every one million dollars invested in oyster reef restoration can actually relate to, I think it's about eight point one jobs, full time jobs return, which is 
phenomenal when you compare that to other industries like the aeronautical, which is somewhere between one or two jobs for every $1 million invested. What sort of jobs are they? And, and how can people generally get kind of involved in what's going on in the Solent? The range of jobs on, in oyster restoration is, is quite vast. So you've got scientists, restoration practitioners. I guess you can include the fishermen within that if it's in a sustainably managed area and a whole host of things. And, and we have volunteers interns all sorts of people helping out with the project have you had a favorable reaction from the local community i mean have you got the support i mean you mentioned it was a good area for for sailing and things have you had a favorable reaction from the local community and have they got behind the project a great number of volunteers and and local people who get involved in the project where they, they can and we also have a project working group it's a how blue works we keep draw together all the key local stakeholders and and make decisions as a group on how we develop our projects and make change for good. And on our working group, fishers are, are more than welcome to join on our working group. We have some regular attendees. We have the conservation bodies. Uh, we even have a local sports team on our, on our working group. Um, and we try and make it as collaborative as we can. So we do have support for the project and um, we, we're going to keep on going forward and trying to make the changes for good and uh, bring the oysters back to the Solent as quickly as we can do. How, how long do you think that's going to take? I mean, you talked about, the obviously, they, they're very productive in terms of, of, of reproduction, but not all of those, those larvae turn into oysters. How long will it take for you to get back to that level of population that you think is a healthy population for the Solent? And, and I'm assuming that is not a fishing population. So eventually, I guess there'll be extras for people to fish mm. if they wanted. How long are you estimating the project will last? So we kind of look at things in almost five-year chunks with oysters. That's the general time it takes for a, a larvae to get from being released to being a, a fully grown adult and that's when you can kind of start to see the impact and see how many of them have really reached the reproductive age so for over the next five years we'll be putting in uh, at the very least five million oysters into the Solent and then we'll look again and widen out the lens and look at the populations around the Solent and how they're developing and, and look at it again but you know there's restoration projects in the US that have gone on for over 20 years and have done amazing things but that I guess, with the extent of loss of oysters there's all I guess there's always more to do I mean um, we might not ever get all the 95% back but um, we'll, we'll try and get as much as we can. Yeah and what's the sort of average life of uh, span of an oyster Luke? I mean how long do they live for? So I mean there are actually records of, of oysters living up to about 28 years old Typically, it's currently thought that they live somewhere between five and ten years, depending on the environmental conditions, which are drastically different to what they would have historically been, which I think influences them massively at the moment. And I guess if you if you look at it and compare it with how much effort and how many years were put into extracting all of those oysters, it's going to take at least that to return them and, and manage and protect them. So I mean, these projects are kind of life. I, I'm I'm hoping personally, because I enjoy it so much, lifelong projects that will, will continue in some shape or form. It's hoping, hoping that they'll become self-sustaining is the main goal. Yeah. And um, what's a typical day look like for you? I mean, obviously, at the moment, you're in lockdown, so you're not able to get to your beloved oyster beds. But what would you normally do, be doing? Would you spend much time actually out in the water or would it mostly be sort of research-based activity? I think that's yeah, partly why I love the job so much. It's, it's so varied. I can go from being on the boat one day completely covered in mud 
grab sampling, pulling up oysters and sediment for the next day being in the lab, in the molecular lab, being as clean as possible. So I've actually got two lab coats, one that stands up on its own because the mud solidifies and the other one that is completely clean in the molecular. So completely varied day to day. I couldn't say what, I don't have a daily routine. It's so varied. So some days in the office, some days out on the pontoon, some days out on the boat, some days in schools. Uh, other outreach activities so education is probably a really key part of this isn't it and educating young people but also the wider population as to what we need to do to support oyster reintroduction and to support marine habitats in general absolutely it's a really key aspect to the project and trying to bring oysters back into a cultural awareness i mean there are towns in the Solent that lived off oysters you know places like emsworth that was just part of their culture but these things have started to be lost now because we've we've it's been so long since they've been part of what people do on a day-to-day basis so we want to draw draw people back to that you know get get them as fired up as we are about how how important oysters are and and why we should look after them so um, we do that through our volunteer work giving talks in the local community or bringing kids down to the pontoons and pulling up a cage and show that showing them what what lives beneath the water and you know you'll start the day with a school group if you ask them what lives beneath the water they'll say you know spongebob or something and then at the end of the day they'll be telling you what their favorite star ascidian was that they found on the on the cage so it's it's actually a really great and tangible a way of getting people involved such tactile things aren't they and they're so unthreatening and i mean i think that people you know whereas as with some marine life people would just shy away from it you know maybe he wants to get close to a jellyfish but oysters are, are really tactile and they're really um tangible for people to get their heads around yeah. and my, my producer just cracked a really corny joke about reintroducing the blue oyster cult perhaps we could create a new blue oyster cult following down in the solent but i'm going to spare you that i just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, i do want to ask you about your work overseas lid I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the impact of COVID and, and, and possibly an oyster's role in helping us to tackle climate change. Because we've talked a lot on these, these podcasts with Blue colleagues about how important the, the marine ecosystems are in terms of the wider um, challenge around climate change and, the, and global heating. Do oysters have a role in carbon sequestration at all? And have you seen any kind of as a result of COVID with a reduction of traffic and fishing traffic and perhaps a reduction of pollution? Uh, yes, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of research out in the States looking into oysters and their role that they play in, in carbon cycling. It's very early days for the field in Europe, so we have to be very careful about overstating their potential. We are aware that they can encourage other habitats to form and they, they do play a role in carbon cycling if they were at a level that they were found historically. I don't know if, Jacob, you want to add to that? I would say the the role that oysters play in the environment is hugely important, but carbon sequestration isn't necessarily the the role that they play, other than perhaps encouraging other blue carbon habitats, as Luke mentioned, to grow and develop, which has been proven elsewhere, but not in the UK just yet. And obviously you've not been able to get to the oyster bed, so you haven't been able to see if there's been any um, positive impacts from the reduction in, in fishing marine traffic. But would you imagine that that when you go back and have get a chance to have a look, it's going to be a little bit cleaner, a little bit less polluted? So, I mean, I've, I've been cycling actually along the seafront down in Portsmouth every morning, and I've noticed a massive difference, not only in the, the clarity of the water. I've actually been down to one of our cage sites that you can see from a distance and the water clarity is completely different. I mean, the, the reduction in boat traffic, car traffic, all of that is all going to play a huge role in reducing the impact. And 
it would be really interesting if we see a bumper year for oyster recruitment as to what role we can play as humans of actually trying to encourage that and, and help the marine environment along because it does really need a hand. Um, and I think, yeah, after COVID, personally, I'm going to try and live more sustainably. And I think a lot of people are changing their mindset and actually jumping on that is something that I would be very keen to do and encourage more people to get involved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pandemic's been horrific and awful and cannot be understated, but there has been a little bit of a bonus for the natural environment and the reduction in pollution, both air and marine pollution has definitely part of that. It's been fascinating to talk to you and to hear about your enthusiasm for something that most of us probably know so little about and, and are certainly much, much better informed now as a result of the conversation. Before we close, what, what can people do to support the work that Blue are doing in the Solent and elsewhere? And, and how can people get involved in, in the project and help you particularly? If anyone wants to get involved in the project, uh, visit Blue's website. We have an email there that you can get in contact and get in touch with us. And once things are getting vaguely back to normal, we'll be going back on our volunteer work and really just, uh, you know, talk to your friends and about how important oysters are. And, um, you know, we'll be really pushing for the government to start looking at oysters as nature-based solutions for problems that we have in, in the environment. So, you know, get in touch with Blue, get updates and newsletters from us and just follow the project really and 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 support it where you can if you can come volunteer that's amazing we'd love to come and meet you and and uh you know share our passion with you jacob you've talked about what the general public can do and school children and your other stakeholders is there something that the government should be doing i mean are there calls for policy or action at a government local or national level i think that yeah there definitely are um i think one of the challenges at the moment with oyster restoration is the way that nature and the habitat restoration is tr- is looked at and licensed at the moment we are licensed and, and charged money at the same way that someone would who would be doing a great deal of harm to the marine environment is and a lot of oyster restoration is being done to achieve targets for biodiversity and what we really want to see as blue but also as a community of restoration practitioners is looking at how things are licensed and make it appropriate for non-governmental organisations and, and projects that are looking to uh, change for good in the marine environment. We totally recognise the need for good governance and oversight, but not overbearing licensing that can actually put brakes on projects and prevent them from doing the good work that they're trying to do. And I think that's, that's partly due to the, the concept being such a new one that it's a matter of them kind of running to keep up with it as it develops and as as part of that the environment agency have actually commissioned the uk network for native oysters uh, to publish a handbook on restoration and how it's done so all the way from the beginning of goal setting how you go about planning a project to actually implementing it and communicating it as well so that that will be something that will feed into that and I think will be really beneficial for them. Yeah hugely important to share the best practice and the knowledge you've got for other projects elsewhere. Other than licensing are there any particular barriers that that a project like yours and the oysters particularly face? One of the problems is the availability of oysters. Um, Obviously they've been lost hugely but also the, the growing industry for native oysters the farming industry is very small people make much more money and profitable off other species. So it's it's hard to find the amount of oysters you'd need to restore in, in many areas. And we also have problems with biosecurity. So how, how we make sure that all we're doing is doing good. Uh, and we work very closely with uh, government regulators and as a 
entire community of restoration practitioners to really drive the highest possible biosecurity standards and, and make sure that there aren't any unwanted side effects of the restoration. And that's something we need to take incredibly seriously. Yeah, that holistic approach is so important. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and perhaps when we're restrictions are lifted, we can come back down and actually, um, you, you can take us out complete with your dirty lab coat and we can actually see some oysters at work yeah, in the absolutely. same doing their great filtration work for us. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's the nice thing about the cage system is that it brings the marine environment out onto land so people can actually see it. And which is something that most people don't normally get to in the UK because we're not blessed with the crystal clear waters of the Caribbean or other areas like that but yeah absolutely more than welcome to come down well that's great well it's been terrific talking to you both thank you so much and i wish you all the best with the project and i hope that you get back out in the water soon so luke and jacob thank you for joining the blue marine podcast and for sharing your thoughts and passion with us it's been really good to meet you both been a pleasure thank you yeah thanks very much and thank you to the listeners. It's been fantastic presenting yet another one of these Blue Marine podcasts. You can find out more about Blue Marine by visiting the website, as Jacob said, at bluemarinefoundation.com or by following them on social media at Blue Marine. My thanks to the Planet Pod production team and to Jim, my producer particularly, and to all of the team at Blue Marine. Keep listening and keep your passion for the ocean. La mer, qu'on voit danser. 